Rob, thanks very much for doing this, mate. And I told you before, but genuinely much appreciated, buddy. Pleasure. Listen, first time you asked me, I, I had no go lie. I thought, no. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, I remembered, aye, I've got a show coming up, so. Aye, we're going <laughs> to we're going to talk about it. So you're a bit of Jack of all trades, is how I would describe you. So, okay. um, comedian. Um, barber, um, amazing football player, you've been involved in World of Football, we'll get to all that, but obviously as you mentioned the show, Near Misses, an intriguing title, um, if you can talk to us about that big man. You know what mate, um, I think through my life there's always been, um, I've always got really, really close to kind of um, getting good opportunities and then they've been taken away from me, and be that through social, be it through personal, whatever, issues, it's just always been the case. And you know what? Sometimes near misses also means uh, bad times as well. You know what I mean? Where things could have happened to me and I've just kind of, something's happened and it's, it's missed me. So I feel as though the title's quite ambiguous, but it can kind of work both ways, where it's not just all negative, it's not all positive. There's a wee bit of a mix, a bit, there's a bit of a play on it as well. And people, hopefully, if they come along and, and watch the show, they'll see all different stories and examples that I give on that. So that, 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 was, it. that was the idea behind it. No, oh, that's brilliant, mate. Is there anything sort of specific like that you can talk to him about the new, or um, like with like the same one you're in Mizzy's, whether it be sort of good or bad sort of situation, maybe that you're thinking of? Well, one one that I kind of talk about, I guess, is um, I went for an audition for My Name Is Joe. Now the fellow, My oh, Name Is Joe. Oh, brilliant, mate! Hi. So I actually went, and it was me and Ken Loach and uh, a girl, my friend Carmen. Uh, and Carmen was in like River City, you know, she played Kelly Marie. So Carmen, we, we were really good. Uh, really good friends and we got asked to go on audition with Ken Loach up in the old Rock Hill Hospital right so I sat down and Ken Loach was like okay you're, you're friends you, you like her but you don't want her to know that you like her <laughs> she's got into this house and you don't like what's happening in the house okay scene and me and Carmen had done a scene for about 10 minutes just improv improv that, that's how Ken Loach auditions right mm -hmm. and then at the end of it I came out I was like I feel good and Carmen was like you smashed that mate you'll definitely hear something and this was back in like 1993, 1994 or something. I think the fellow must have come out about 95 or something. Mm -hmm. And I, my wee granny brought me up. And my wee granny was skint, right? And I got home. And I told my wee granny, this blah, 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 excellent. And she was like, oh, that's, that's brilliant, son. How's you going to get in touch with you? I was like, he's going to phone us. She's like, oh, I had to get the phone cut off. Oh, fuck. <laughs> uh. So I'll never know, mate. I'll never know whether or not I got that part. Oh, mate, that is fucking hard. <laughs> have, you, have you ever re tried to reach out to him to go, do you mind me and Kelly Marine have done that? No, no mate, no, listen, he was, honestly, the film was obviously cast and all that and it went on to be a great success. And um, But I think it was the boy Dave Mackay who got the role that I was going for and he's a wee bit more kind of grittier than me, you know what I mean? So maybe he would have cast in the other role because there was a few different kind of strong male characters in that film. Right. So it could have been something else. But looking back on that, that was one of that's one of the ones where I'm like, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, mate, honestly, that broke my heart. So you mentioned <laughs> your granny brought you up there, and obviously I know you're from Chapel. and maybe talk about some of the early years, and then we'll just kind of go for there. Aye, mate. Um, now, it's one of the ones we're getting brought up. Um, I was, um, my grand brought me up uh, because of family reasons, and um, I always felt as though my wee grand was my mom and my dad, you know, mm -hmm. that way, where... Um, and people in the scheme were kind of scared there. I mean, so they, they would come anywhere near me. <laughs> like, oh, here's Maggie coming. Because my granny was mental in the scheme. Um, she was very protective of me, you know, that way. Mm -hmm. she, she liked a good drink and all that as well. So it was one of the ones where, um, I, I, I'm not going to lie, mate, a lot of the time I kind of broke myself up. Um, uh, school was optional, where I know I wanted to go. She, she wasn't a bored when we got to school. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a traditional upbringing, I'm not going to lie. Uh, and I think that's probably why I followed the path, what, what I followed in my life, where I've always kind of kind of went through life kind of flying by the seat of my pants and see what it takes me. And that's probably why I've I've, I've maybe kind of dipped my toe in and out of different, different types of professions and work and all that because I'd never really had that stability growing up, I guess. So I've always kind of looked for the next hit, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So your granny, you're saying she's a bit mental. Would she have had a lot of like vice? Which would she have been involved with violence in Drum Chapel and stuff like that? Or <laughs> I think so. I think there was a few occasions where, I a few occasions where um, I, I wasn't there, but I heard stories of like kind of get involved with ruckuses outside the local pub and all that, and, 
and um, Farm no, just my grand, but my uncles and all that as well. And um, was it was it women she was fighting? Was she fighting no, the guys or not? No, she fight, used to fight with the guy at the pub, man. <laughs> <laughs> because he refused to serve her anywhere else. She used to fucking go mental with him. Sorry, I'm allowed to swear. Ah, of course, I right. swear. Right. So I, I used to go mental with him and then get barred and then call him all sorts. And then outside, and then she'd attack him and then, aye. But, you know what I mean? Um, I think all women for that era in Glasgow have all kind of or experienced some sort of violence in the in the past, you know, and it's 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 a rite of passage, I guess. Aye, no, I think so. How do you think that shapes like a person? Like, do you think in their life? Like, do you think because I think with some people it makes them maybe more caring, um, like around the ones they love, but obviously they can get, they feel like maybe they get triggered in certain situations, and then they end up having more fights because of the, because of the violence they've experienced. Sometimes that's my sort of experience of trauma in, in situations like that. I think trauma is a key word, mate. I think trauma is a key word. Um, I think a lot of uh, violence, I think violence breeds violence, and violence follows violence, especially in the schemes of Glasgow. You know what it's like yourself. Now, I've been in, I can count in one hand the amount of, amount of fights I've been in, actual physical fights, um, because I don't go looking for it, you know, that way. But I think sometimes... It's almost like an addiction. I, I think it's an addiction to some people, violence, where if they've been involved in violence or a life, then they seek it or they need it in their life. But as I've been the opposite, I've always been a kind of pacifist. I've always tried to avoid it. And at times I can be quite aggressive, but I would always know where the line is, you know, that way, where I would never kind of step over that line and get involved in altercations. I think the last fight I was in, I was maybe 21, 22 years of age, you know what I mean? So I think you grow out of it. Some people are meant to grow out of it. People who don't, then you... As I said, it's a lifestyle choice, I think. If you don't want, know what I'm trying to get to. No, 100%, mate, and I, I completely empathise with that. Like, I'm not a fighter at all myself either. Um, I've always been... I've been actually proud when I've walked away from situations, and I've walked away from their fights and their fud. Um, and I don't think guys are open enough about, like, you should say your pal fair play, you know, he was being a dick, but you walked away, because a lot of the time when these situations happen, it's ego, basically. So somebody calls you a prick or whatever, anybody's mate, everything all right, you can hang or just, I sound mate, I'm a prick, right, whatever. Do you know what I mean? You don't need to then prove your, your manliness, I think, by sort of having a fight. And I think with young boys, and especially that's part of growing up in Scotland, mm. in the west of Scotland, it's a, it's a shame, really, is, is, is my take on it. I think it's... Um I think it's a reflection of some, how somebody's feeling within themselves. If somebody wants to resort to violence or feels as though they need violence in their life, it's something, I mean, it's more a reflection on them than the person they want the violence with. So you, how you're saying you can kind of just walk away from it. I've, I've always been the same. And like my, my boy as well, um, the kids as well. And I, I don't think my boys have been in a full-fledged a full fight, neither, because I keep telling them, I keep saying to them, you don't want to get involved with trouble because all it does is trouble breeds trouble, is what I just said. I say, but then the advice I give them is never hit first, always hit last. That's the advice I give as well. If somebody comes to you, then you've got license to go and to go and protect yourself. You know I, what I mean? No, definitely should defend yourself if, mm -hmm. if you're attacked. One hundred percent. We've obviously talked about drum chapel there. So my perception, I'm no fader, right? I sort of stay nearby. Um, but my perception of drum chapel is that all kind of working class communities. It looks like it's a kind of tight knit community. Um, is that your experience, uh, like living and growing up there, and obviously being a comedian there? Definitely, big, 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 big sense of community in the scheme. Um, um, there's also a sense of no getting out your station as well. No, that way where people kind of will pull you back and all that. So it's good. It's good. My my big granny was was um, was probably she was probably the, the kind of um, what's the word the, the kind of paradox of that where she would big me up she'd bump me up my, my Robert's this my Robert's eyes go do this go do that and then at the same time say to me don't get fucking above your station <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was always like it was always like she was she'd bumming me up she used to say bumming me up to our pals or she'd say my Robert he's this he's that and, but then to me face to face she, she'd just kind of say to me oh fucking De Niro just remember who you are where you're from you <laughs> know what I mean De Niro, I love that. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> but that's great. It sounds obviously your grand was important in you. Um, and is that how you try, obviously you're a parent, is that how you kind of try and like, parent your, your own way sort of thing, be being that sort of positive influence externally, but privately kind of, you know, keeping them in check? It's, it's difficult getting the balance sometimes, like as a parent myself. I find myself when I, when I kind of chastise, I mean, I, after that, I'm like, oh, maybe I should have. You know, I could have reacted you a bit differently, or you know, I, I regret it. Sometimes it's difficult to know where the line is, um, and I think that's my experience. You know, my dad was quite—he could be quite sh short and sharp sometimes, great guy. But 
I think I've got that sort of trait in me as well, which mm-hmm. is, I am trying to get better, I suppose. Listen, we're all trying to get better. There's no, there's no, there's no handbook for bringing wins up. But that's what I found amazing. Do you know what I mean? Um, but when I, when I, when I had kids, it was just like, how am I going to do this? How am, I don't know what to do with Wayne. I don't know how to change a nappy, don't know how to feed a Wayne, don't know how to burp a Wayne. Am I going to break it? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but it's just like, part of you, another part of your brain kicks in. You know what I mean? When it comes to being a dad. I feel as though it's a part of you that's always waiting to kind of click into gear, but it doesn't click into gear until you're until you've got the win. You you know that experience. It's instinct, hundred percent. It's it's that whole kind of nurture over nature kind of thing as well. We're all we're all nurturers. We are all, all nurturers. Some of us can can bring that out. Some of us try and try and suppress it. I think as men, because maybe men see that as a weakness. As being a nurturer or being a good dad, because no got to lie, as you said, like a lot is. Maybe haven't they seen good examples of of, of 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 good dads? You know what I mean. So my my point was, I always wanted to be there for my kids, regardless, because my grand brought me up. So I, I said to myself, I'm always going to be around, regardless. And a wee part of that has been been to kind of the detriment. I'm not going to lie. Um, um, without granted too much, I kind of put my um, own mental health on the line at times for, for my kids' own well being. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to make sure that, 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 that they were okay, you know, that way. Because I knew how much a struggle it was growing up without having that kind of patriarchal kind of figure in your life. Aye, no, well, maybe get back to that because I know you're involved with mental health things later on. Mm-hmm. We'll just kind of try and follow it and like, I've got a kind of wee order in my head kind of thing. Okay. So, obviously, Trump Chapel as well, it's known for its, its violence and, and its gangs, I suppose, um, is how the press, I suppose, would kind of... Um, would flag things really. Um, did you have any experience happening you growing up? Do you kind of worry about that when all at all, or you know? I think the thing that kind of saved me growing up probably was 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 football. Um, I, I was involved with football all my life, and I wasn't really into going out and getting drunk, getting mad with, it, taking all sorts, carrying a blade and all that. That just was never never on my radar. It was never something that impressed me. I'd see my mates all going out getting mad with, it and I'd have a ball. I'd be kicking a ball about, you know what I mean? I'd see guys uh, chasing each other with, with machetes and kind of a guy planting a machete in a guy's head. I'd seen all that happen in front of me and I had a ball. I was kicking a ball in the, in the grass area next to it. And that was always my vision. That was always my focus where I felt as though, um, I'm not saying I had a gift or anything, but I always felt as though that was my that was my thing, you know, that way. And my mates were all getting mad with it on a Friday night and all that, and I'd be, I'd be signing in to go to my bed at 10 o'clock because I had a game the following day. So mm-hmm. football has always been my 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 saviour, my saving grace, to a certain extent, um, but it's always given me that discipline. And that's something that I'm doing with, with, with my own boys just now, is try to get a discipline in them, try to get a, a, a focus, try to get something in them that they can kind of work towards rather than uh, want to go and get mad with it or um, be a hard man. Because you know what? Underneath every hard man, there's somebody who's needing help. That's what I find. There's somebody who's, who's struggling. It's the same with bullying. If somebody's bullying, I always say to my boy, my my youngest came to me and says, this boy's been a bully. And I said, well, I said, maybe he needs help. And you talk to your teacher about him, it's not grassing. You're actually helping that boy. And that's the kind of mindset I'm trying to get into my kids, is realising what goes on. Um, people's actions are quite often a reaction to what's going on inside them. 100% mate, I couldn't agree with you more on that point um, like I've had experiences of trauma as well in my life and uh, it definitely it breeds that, you know, when you're hurt you, you can, you can. unfortunately you want to um, hurt, hurt that, people hurt that's what they say, uh, mm-hmm. you kind of want to inflict that pain on other people sometimes and it's, it's a real shame uh, I don't know a lot about the schooling system and the sort of programmes that get in place but I hope that it's better than, I was, than it was when I was at school because I don't know if they were as conscious of mental health, especially in Wayne's, because Wayne's, they have mental health issues as well, so I hope that is out there, definitely. But move on to maybe happier subjects. So you met, you met the men's you fit with the big man, and I can testify you are an absolute brilliant fit player, one of the best, comed- like, best comedian <laughs> fit players in Scotland. That's, that's a great accolade. <laughs> no, there's a huge amount of them, but exactly. you're certainly one of the best. Um, so would that that would be the sort of happiest years of your, your, your ladies, I suppose. Can, did you... Can you mind any sort of specific examples, maybe playing with teams, winning competitions, that sort of stuff, and to t- talk about that a wee bit, maybe? Aye, aye. Um, again, football, I was um, almost like obsessed with football, and I still am, it is the, uh, and it's more a kind of coaching side of things now, and 
I coach, obviously. Um, I take Clybank Ladies team, and I'm, I've been involved in pro youth academies and all that. And it is like an obsession. I've always been obsessed. I was obsessed for a playing point. When I was younger, now I'm obsessed with a kind of coaching tactical viewpoint, that, that side of it now. Um, but I always remember one time um, I was at Clybank, and Clybank had just... I heard Clybank were, were folding. Remember Clybank folding? I think it was Aye. 94, 95. And I was kind of like in under-18s, I think, at the time, under-20s. Fought between the two squads. I'd kind of come through their, their, their youth system. Uh, and um, I heard they were about to fold. So I managed to get a trial for Falkirk. But um, my mate, I was playing for his Saturday morning team as well. And he he was lactis. Oh, he, he, he was he was like 30. I was like 17, right? And um, he was like that. You can't even know, go and play for us because you got a trial for Falkirk. I was like, mate, I've got a trial. It could be could be turning point in my life. I could get a, a pro contract. Whatever end it. He's like, aye, right. Um, well, we're short for bodies, and it was like a, a, a guy's adult game on a on a, on a, a red ash part. And, and I remember it was faithfully at my back of the drum, right? I'm playing against this team who were all cloggers for East End, right? So in my head, I'm thinking, what happens? I got a fucking broke my leg or something. So, but I was always kind of flashy when it came to football, right? And um. He was like, score a hat trick for half time, I'll let you go and get the early train. <laughs> I was like, what? He's like, just come and do it. He goes, you know, you can. I was only 17 at the time playing amateur football, right? So I remember I'd scored two, and um, it was after about 25 minutes, right? I'd scored two, 25 minutes. I played up front, I was rapid, right? Especially at 17 against all these guys with beer bellies and all that. I could just run away from them. Big, massive pitch, just over the top, I'd run on it. And then the last goal, guys played on the tap. I've ran through, I'll be 25 yards clear of the last defender. The goalie comes out, around the goalie, the goalie's like 20 yards out, I go on my hands and knees, and I go like that and head the ball in on the line, on my hands and knees, like on all fours, and I'm like, I'm trying to like my, my, my manager, take me off now, after about 25 minutes, on my way back, about four of these big fat cuts, I try to volley me on the way oh, back, like you fucking cocky me asshole. <laughs> try to volley me, <laughs> turned into a massive rammy, I was like my mate, I'm off skating at Council Elders, you're the rest of the game. <laughs> see, when, see when you were telling me that story, I thought you were going to see you missed it there for no, a second. No, no chance. <laughs> so I went and jumped on, I had to skip the train, I know it Falkirk, I didn't have money for my, my train fare, and uh, I got to Falkirk and I skipped it, and uh, I actually scored as well, I played the guy, I, started, I played the second half, and it was, um, it was Falkirk under 20s, I always remember it was a heavy, heavy pitch, it was pushing the rain, heavy, heavy pitch. And the boys doing the right hand side, and something inside me, you know that way, a lot, a lot of football is natural, right? And something doing the right hand side, uh, the wee right winger was a good player, would buy the boy. And normally I wouldn't make this run because I've been playing with old guys that couldn't fucking run past MD. So the boys would pass the boy, and something inside me said, get across the front, just in my head. So I, so I made a run, I went back, and then I cut across the guy, front post, and the boys fizzed a, a great ball, and I've just kind of slid in and kind of toe poked it by the goalie and scored on my debut. And then I come off and the guy's like, how ain't you? We've got something about you now. Something about you, come to training. But it was three nights a week through in Falkirk and going for the drum to Falkirk when my big granny didn't have a lot of money. So I was skipping trains and all that and I was getting caught and missing training and all that and having to fucking walk in for like a party, you know what I mean? So it wasn't sustainable. Okay, that's another, that's a shame, mate. It's an your miss, isn't it? So I ended up just going back and playing, uh, playing with a couple of local amateur teams and all that and then... Um, I actually get snapped and then so Falkirk actually decided to put me out on loan or a, a couple of junior teams and then I got a triple fracture dislocation my left ankle at 24 and that was pretty much the end of my, my kind of career at that level <laughs> ah, that's, see I've, I find that though like see guys that get injured like John Kennedy and there's other examples mm-hmm. seems like a lot of them get into coaching do you think there's a reason for that or it's, it's, it seems like a trend to me in football it's, it's a love of the game mate it's a love of the game I think through my experience being involved with football, you get football people who are involved with football and you get non-football people who are involved with football. The football people will stay in, they'll get involved with coaching. If there's no role there, they'll be fucking ball boy, they'll be kit man, they'll do it they can for the team. The non-football people, as soon as they stop playing, they'll never kick a ball again in their life. You know that way? And I think that's what the world's like. You get two types of people, football people and non-football people. Uh, see, I was wondering <clears> about if it was part of the trauma that as well, like your body breaking down like that, and then obviously taking away something you love, it just kind of helps him psychologically to still be involved because everybody talks about like 
these guys and they get a right good reputation, you know, and as coaches and as managers. Try to think of other examples in the back. They're not coming here, but there's definitely Aye. players out there that has happened to There's a boy, boy Reese McCabe and Airdrie is a good one as well. He Reese McCabe come through uh, Rangers and all that and now he's he's got a, he's building up a good reputation. Airdrie are playing brilliant football just now and he's all a young boy as well. I think he had to maybe stop a wee bit earlier because of injuries. Uh, you mentioned John Kennedy, uh the other boy, well, Ian, Ian Durant, I guess, mm-hmm. he got involved with coach, I know he still had a bit of a playing career, but he was never the same, was he, after he'd done his knee in, I always remember Durant when they come back, um, aye, I think that, um, well, now you've got Alexa like Mourinho, who, aye, he never played really, did he? But there's an example of a football person, because he got involved with football, he started football, he was a translator at Barcelona, wasn't he, for Bobby Robson, that's how he started, wasn't it? Aye, and then he ended up getting into coaching through that, aye. Exactly, or even, the way I look at Rangers, like some Mark Warburton, who, had never been involved with football. He was, a, he was a city banker and he basically paid for all his badges and then he got involved with clubs at youth level and then worked his way up. So there's lots of different ways people have got involved with the game. But as I said, football people will find their way regardless. You know what I mean? And non-football people will just will drop out. Uh, you mentioned, um, like, obviously this guy with the sort of full cut situations and he's a bit unfortunate because you might have scored a hat-trick in that game because I mean flat, mate, to be Aye. honest. But... Aye. Um, Maybe did you have any positive role models sort of going through your sort of early years, your school years, your football years, and maybe any advice for the young team coming up, like how to seek out like good role models and how to establish kind of relationships with them? Because I think that's something that I probably struggled with when I was a kind of youngster. Um, definitely had sort of respect for people, and I did try and get close to them, but it's it's, it's difficult to to know how to do that sometimes. I think I'd love to say I, but no, is the proper answer. I didn't have MD. I didn't have MD to look up to in terms of football. If anything, I wish I did, because I was a, a, a cocky, arrogant wee shite when it mm. came to football. I thought I knew everything. At like 17, 18, I thought I knew. I thought I was the best. I thought I knew everything. I didn't even listen to MD, including coaches. And that's the thing now that I try and put it in my boys, is to give them what I didn't have. And that's about getting brought up. And it's not just about getting brought up in terms of life, getting brought up in terms of football as well. And like coaches comment on my boy now, especially Noah, and say how much he knows the game. And there's only 10. And that's just because every time we sit and watch football, I point things out to him. You know that way? Play FIFA, I point things out to him about players, about runs and all that. And um, I I wish I had that. I, if I had that, I probably wouldn't have made some of the choices that I made in terms of teams I went and played for. Um, even like going to play uh, the juniors and all that, I was a stupid, I put myself in a stupid situation and all that. But I shouldn't have to get an injury. I've tried to get in, uh, late on a boy and done myself and all that. So, just wee things like that. If I had somebody who had an, that experience, and that's what I'm trying to do with my boys, you know, I'm trying to give them what I never had when I, when I was getting brought up. Aye, good, no, mate. For what I see, that's how I like Anytime I meet mean, you, are always dead sound and mm-hmm. can see if you've got a good relationship with your boys and that. So mm-hmm. that's brilliant, mate. Um, what about, we'll move on to um, the transition for a bit then, and maybe your, as we mentioned, the kind of jack all trades. <laughs> you've obviously loads of jobs in your career. Mm-hmm. Any kind of stories or any particular jobs that, that stick out in your memory? <laughs> One of the jobs I had that I absolutely hated was um, it was I was with uh, my ex partner Nora and and um, and we were going to get married, so I had to go and take a job. Right, I had to take a job to try and help pay for this wedding. And um, a friend of hers had a um, estate agent. And what they were doing was they were starting up a new venture where they were getting people to go business to business to sell baguettes. And she recommended me for this job. So I was like, what? The guy's like, I, it's £50 a day. You basically just go around all the businesses, chat the doors and sell baguettes. And plus, you get a free baguette and you get her, and then you get £1.50 per baguette that, that you sell and all that. Baguettes were like three quid, you know what I mean? So <laughs> I rocked up and it was like a wee kind of uh, picnic basket, kind of half... <laughs> My kind of Easter kind of bonnet thing with a, a wee handle wicker basket full of these baguettes, mate, about 80 baguettes or something. And honestly, getting into like Arnold Clark or these pure manly men, and I've came for playing football and thinking I'm something special to walking into Arnold Clark, trying to sell fucking baguettes to all these coked up wee salesmen, you know what I mean? That was great fun, mate, some of the looks that you get. So I absolutely hated that. It was just to make money to go. I lasted about four days. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Lasted about four days, and my wee, my wee mate. Much did you make in your four days, man? I, I ate my profits, mate. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you went injury your lying bastard. I think I ate my profit. No, um, I think he paid me. I ended up paying me like a score or something. I can't remember, but um, but my wee mate, he was he had his own business, wee marketing guy, wee Gordy, who I knew through the football, 
And he said to me, come on, I'll teach you how to do sales. Lovely guy, mate, but so intense. Like, really, really intense. He, he basically kind of recorded a script on a dictaphone and he wanted you to learn it verbatim. There was no deviation from it. And then it was all cold calling. And it was, I remember it was Paisley, Causey Side Street in Paisley, this business, right? Local business. And then you try and chop local business doors to have advertising space in this in this garage, this car garage. And so it was all cold calling. I'm walking in my this suit, this, my, my, my grandpa's old suit, fucking miles too big for me, a pure shitey fish, big fish tie and all that. See people like walking in the hairdressers and all that, we're tied to be birds and that. And see them all looking at you. I'm like, oh, what? So that was horrendous, mate, cold call. And the amount of people who said to me, actually, in there, I'll give you a job in here, mate, this job's shite. Um, just go in and talk to punters. Because I've always been able to speak to people. And that's I, I think I think he's seen that in me. You know what I mean? Having that kind of that personal approach. What was it you were selling? Is it something that you maybe weren't passionate about? Did that have an impact as well? Advertising space. Advertising space. So in, the, in these businesses, you used to have boards and then other local businesses would advertise and within the business. So it was a car garage and um, tyres and exhaust, MOTs and that. And then when people were sitting in the MOT centre, they'd have these advertising boards and local businesses would be on it. So somebody could be sitting there thinking, oh, there's a dentist or there's a dog groomer or something advertised. I'll try them. You know that way? So I was selling these boards. Aye, that sounds shit to be fair. My mate done that Horrendous. for a while and he, <laughs> I didn't enjoy it, safe to say. Yeah, honestly, I've had so many gigs, so many jobs that honestly, from driving buses, drove a bus for a while, I, I, I chucked it mid-shift up there. <laughs> for fuck's sake. The can was bus. Was passengers on the bus still? Aye, bus was full, mate. It was a double-decker bus. <laughs> Stand 17 at Buchanan bus station <laughs> and see when people... I'll tell you another story. I've got two stories. I've got a couple of stories on this, actually. I've actually got to do a bit of material on it. I'm trying to work it out, but it was um, double-decker bus, the number nine, gone for Buchanan bus station, uh, Linwood and Paisley. Bus full, all grannies, the whole shebang, right? And see when people tell me, see when, see when somebody tells me off, I think that's a trigger for me. I just, I throw my toys at the pram, right? That's, that's my, one of my biggest things. I think that's a trauma thing as well, to be honest with you. But bus load, Put it in reverse, right? I've only been in a job for about two weeks. I've got my PCV and all that, right? So I'm learning how to drive. Basically, I'm, I'm basically just new. I fucking hit the hang in reverse. It's, it's going to beep, beep. And the kind of bus station, the wee guy stands behind you with a whistle. When you put it in reverse, he's got a whistle. He's like, he's like, back you out. I'm like, with a windy. Mate, it's no fucking moving. So then, <laughs> I had to radio the depot. So I've radioed the depot, right? It was a uh, Scotsland depot. I've like, listen, mate, this bus is fucked. I was like, it's in reverse. I've, I've got a fucking bus load. All the big grannies are banging the perspex. If I remember leaving, driver, and I'm like, listen, <laughs> it's no fucking moving. And the guy, and then the guy for the depot's like, when the when the, when the radio is, we well, remember a bus driver. He can't fucking reverse a bus. I was like, oh, here you go, mate. Fucking <laughs> opened the door, walked off the bus. The bus is full and I use my, my free bus ticket through the corner and we'll get a bus up the road. And the bus is, I don't know, we're still sitting there, but that was, honestly, <laughs> that was one time. Another time is I worked in a, my first job in a pub, right? I worked in the Boozers. It was called the Hayburn Vaults in Partick. It's called Dock and Doris now in Partick, near Partick train station. And it was Scotland v England, Euro 96. Remember the goal, the game Gaza scored, flicked over Colin uh, Hendry and Andy Gorham. It was that game, right? It was roasting hot. Do you remember that day? It was roasting hot, right? And the, the bar was about 10 deep, man. All these guys in kilts, all that, right? Because Scotland, the England. And I've been walking behind the bar, second or third shift. Mobbed, man. The manager's there, all the staff are there. The horseshoe bar, right? It's, a, it's literally shaped a horseshoe, so it's all the way around, right? You're serving. 10 deep. Fucking sweat on hot, the game's on. Try to watch the game, try to see how these fucking arseholes pints, right? And the manager's like, the barrel's deep. Go down and change your barrel. I'm like, second or third shift. I'm like, I don't know how to fucking change a barrel, mate. He's like, you want the pub catch you in your fucking barrel? I was like, the tie, I feel he's your tie, mate. Jump to the bar, watch the game. <laughs> <laughs> fucking brilliant, thing, man. Oh, mate, I tell you what. My mate used to slag me in a surf job and all. He got me a job in the local wee fruit and veg shop in Drumchap, or the wee corner shop, wee fruit and veg shop. And um, I walked in, guy's like, here you go, a white jacket, right? My fucking sleeves are like up to my elbows, right? Pure four sizes to be for is this white jacket, covered in all sorts of shite, bogging this jacket. I'm like, what the fuck's this? And the guy's like, he's, go and grab a totties, big bag of totties. I bring him in. He's like, not going to fucking measure yourself. And right away I'm like, ah. now triggers, triggers because he's he's been aggressive towards me and he's talking to me as I'm a piece of shit, you know what I mean? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well fucking, you get, you get I think it was four pun bags and six pun bags, measure them out in the scales, get the bags, put the fucking totties in. 
I went like, hey, you're fucking you. Get back there and walk through the door. <laughs> no, that is, it's interesting you say that because, uh, again, that, that's my own personal experience of trauma and it's only now as I'm getting older, 36, and I'm starting to realise well, that's a kind of trauma response. Mm-hmm. Um, are you getting better at sort of recognising what your triggers are and are you, like, are you able to sort of cope with a bit more now? Like, you know, if some cunt fucking heckles you to a gig, you know, like, hey, fuck that, I'm off kind of thing. You know what, it took me so long, mate. It took me really, really long to deal with... Um, Heckling in particular, people try to get wide or just try to get a point or whatever. For so long, I would get aggressive with hecklers because it was a trauma thing as well. But see now, it's I've done a lot of mindfulness now when I work for Men Matter. Do a lot of mindful, mindfulness. Um, it's about recognising the situation and then letting it pass. So the example I was given is like standing on a bridge and you're looking and the water's flowing under you and you see all this debris in the water. So you acknowledge it coming towards you, but then you see it's kind of moved under you. And that's what I'm trying to do with life just now. You know what I mean? Good times will come, bad things will come, but it's all temporary and it will pass. And that's kind of like how I'm trying to kind of, that's kind of like my mantra No, Not just in comedy, but in life in general. Aye, there's a good video, um, I can't remember if it's Denzel Washington or Tom Hanks, and they, they just sort of talk about that and they say, this too shall pass, and if you can have that as like a mantra, it definitely kind of helps you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good advice. You, you mentioned, obviously, um, the, the charity under the chapel, I was, was going to ask you about that, so um, can you tell us how you get involved with that and like, why mm-hmm. maybe it's important for men to talk, talk in situations like this, because this is no something that I would do ordinarily, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Like with my pals and that, when we meet up, it's all kind of laugh, mm-hmm. and occasionally some will put in the group chat, you know, I've not been feeling like myself recently mm-hmm. or whatever, and they obviously get the sort of support and the help they need, but mm-hmm. I still think that their generation, millennials and older, they're no great about talking about mm-hmm. mental health, especially for guys. Obviously, women get mental health problems as mm-hmm. well, but it, I don't. It's, it'd be interesting to talk to it for a guy's perspective. Well, I think it was something like seventy-five um, percent of suicides are men between the age of twenty, if 35, 40, I think that's seventy-five percent. It's men, and as, as you say, there's a reason because men don't talk. Men don't talk, and men have we've, we've spoke about already. Men have this this hard exterior and soft centre. And it's all about know what to show it. Because we all do. We all, we're all scared. We're all scared. We're all scared we boys, deep down. You know what I mean? And we do all have problems and we've never dealt with it. It's never been resolved. We've never spoke to somebody about it. But as women, we'll go and talk to our pals and they'll, they'll get advice, they'll get help. Women will be a support network for each other. Men won't. Men will slag fuck each other and go for a pint and then wake up in the morning feeling like shit, had a good night, but then the problems are still there. So I basically had a lot of trauma in my life. Um... And that's why I got involved with, with Men Matter. I, I went there as a service user. And um, <clears throat> I did things like mindfulness. I did things like the Wim Hof and the cold water therapy stuff. Mm-hmm. I done um, meditation. I got counselling. I got therapy. I got one-to-one. And then on the back of it, I started volunteering in the project. I thought I started feeling better about myself. I started understanding why I, I've had these feelings all my life. So I started, uh, there was a volu- voluntary role that came up. And then on the back of that, uh, a paid position came up and I went for an interview and I had some ideas about how I'd change things and I, and I got a job but I feel as though I felt as though when I was in there I felt as though there was a lot of triggers for a lot of stories that I was hearing and also going home I felt as though I couldn't just switch off no that way I'd be worrying about people in situations where I'd be trying to help somebody get somewhere to sleep or somebody who was suicidal or whatever and I'd help them to a certain extent but then I had to leave them and I'd get home worrying and there was a few occasions where, unfortunately, uh, people did go through away, take their own life. And for me, I just broke down. I was like, I can't. I can't do it. I felt partially responsible. Even though I wasn't, I had contact with a person, you know what I mean, before they take their own life. And I felt as though I could have done more. And, and you can't do more because when somebody's in that mindset, that's it. I know. That, that's, a, that's, that's heartbreaking, mate. Um, and that's PTSD, I think, what you're describing there. I'm not a psychologist. Complex. I just but that's my sort of personal experience in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I put this out publicly sort of thing, but um, I've definitely had my mental health struggles mm-hmm. a lot in life, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely been the kind of person who's, um, how shall we say, um, like had it basically, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, concealed it, um, just tried to kind of you know help other people with their problems that really no kind of focusing on me. Like you're saying, kind of went away earlier. Um, so when I was like 15, I actually tried to commit suicide, mm-hmm. um, and 
I've still not really. It's difficult to, to obviously talk about, it and it's, I don't think I've sort of fully processed it. But I basically, was depressed. I suppose I was just getting stressed out about exams in my life. I had really bad acne, and it was kind of it really affected me. Um, I don't know why. So I had a beautiful girlfriend at the time, and she was like nice family or the rest of it. But just something in my head just wasn't right. And um, I, I made an attempt, and luckily it was unsuccessful. Do you know what I mean? I thank whoever was looking after me that day, angels or whatever. There's something else out there. I think that sort of helps you in situations like that. But um, now as an adult again like I'm like I've been to therapy I'm going back to therapy like it's an ongoing thing I think that um, there shouldn't be any stigma attached about folk going to therapy like and I would encourage definitely if there's folk out there and they are feeling low they are feeling down go to these places like Men's United and Chapel I seen one the day I think it was Man On Inverclyde they've got like a wee podcast yeah, and a sort bit. of support group mm-hmm. um, and obviously you can go down your GP route and get a referral and the rest of it so mm-hmm. um, I think we should be mere encouraging of that like people there should be hundred, like a thousand more therapists in Scotland like the waiting list times in are an absolute disgrace so hopefully um, the young team that are coming up they'll be interested in trauma and um, you know they'll, they'll get training and we'll have more psychologists and more focus so I can help people that's the real epidemic in this country mate the real epidemic isn't Covid or whatever it's, it's mental health I think um, I think even before Covid I think a lot more people were struggling and then you've got the cost of living crisis, you've got all this, and um, there's a massive, massive pandemic of people who are struggling. And it's no, you see it more often now, right? You see more often people want to take their life, or you see people posting that are feeling down and all that. And it's became, it's became almost like a norm now where people will post it because they'll talk about it, and it's no, people say, oh, attention scene. It's no. It's not that way. If it's people feel as though they've got nowhere else to turn. And this is a last resort. When somebody get, puts on Facebook, listen guys, I've had enough, blah, 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 catch you all later. That's that's a final, that's a massive cry for help. It's no, it's no attention seeking. But that's the problem. People, society, the powers that be, even governments, I'm going, I'm going to say that word, governments, want people, in my, in my, my opinion, especially with mental health, they don't give a fuck. No, that way, if they gave a fuck, then the numbers wouldn't be so high. If they gave a fuck, there wouldn't be so many projects. If they gave a fuck, there wouldn't be so many deaths. And all they care about, really, governments and everything else and the powers that be is fucking, you're just a number, yeah? They don't give a fuck about your life. They don't give a fuck about your story. These people just give a fuck about how they can make money. And we are the fucking very, very bottom rung of the ladder. You, me, your family, your friends, we are the last thing in these fucking people's minds. And that makes me really, really angry because I've seen so many good people. I've lost so many good people to mental health. And you just need... And you're like, how do you know that, Rob? Look look at the schemes. Look at the schemes of Glasgow. What do you, what do you see? It's not just the schemes of Glasgow. Like, I'll, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's happening in Saltcoats. It's happening in Ayrshire. It's happening up north. It's happening in Edinburgh. Like, this is a, an, and as you say, it's an epidemic across Scotland. And I'd be interested... If there's any politicians out there who are involved with this to come in and talk about it, because it is obviously a complex problem, mm-hmm. but all this is linked, right? So the trauma that we talk about, mm-hmm. the violence that we talk about, the drug deaths that are happening in mm-hmm. Scotland, it's, it's all linked to trauma, but, basically. But people, these, people need to talk to, because when you go to your GP, you're talking about maybe fucking three months or a couple of years before you can see somebody. If you're lucky. And what do you see in the schemes, mate? Every scheme you go to, what do you see? You see a bookies? You see a chemist? You see a fucking kebab shop? You see a pub? No, I mean, well, I can talk to that and all because I'm a, a recovering gambler addict as well, so I've got fucking every di- addiction going on. It's bad for you, I'm into basically. So, so where the fuck do these, why do these people think you put these shops in these areas? You know what I mean? Well, there's no fucking bookies and bears then, is there? It's all done <laughs> deliberately, Aye. um, because they know and it's linked to it's linked to economics, right? Let's just call it where it is. Because Aye. a lot of time when I would gamble, it would be I would maybe be going holiday, it was kind of to Christmas or something like that. And see, when you grow up with, with fuck all, like working class effectively in Scotland, when you've no got a lot of money, you're always kind of you want that because you think if I get to that level, I'll be happy, all my problems are going to be solved once I've got the motor and this and that. But it's not really like that, it's more complex than that. But the money definitely helps, mm-hmm. so. You know, things like wages and stuff like that they should be they should be increased and cost of goods need to get in companies that are making heavy doors need to rein it in a wee bit you know we should be doing things more for society you know back to when like the NHS get formed and that communities need to get together talk to each other and, and help each other with all that sort of stuff like likes happening with your, your, your group up there on Drumchapel I think that should be a model that could be um, put into other 
places like your Salcoats, your North Fairshire, all that sort of stuff, as well as all these other communities across um, the council areas in Scotland. It's another way of taxing the poor, mate. It's a, it's a way of taxing the poor, or these, these places, these, these establishments, because you say, if, you, if you're on benefits, blah, 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 you're not paying tax, so what do you do? You put your money at the bookies, and that money gets taxed on gambling. You put your money at the fucking the off-sales, alcohol gets taxed. You buy fags, that all gets taxed. So well, it's another way of taxing the poor. Maybe, but it's escapism for, for people, and it's the same. It's, no, it's obviously folk who are working, in, in, like I've been gambling when I've had sort of lower-income jobs, middle-income jobs, and still, you know, it's... Just a, it's a way of escaping really reality for a wee bit. So I watched, I read something the other day there, uh, some economist, and they said that if you were to put together all the billionaires and millionaires in um, in the UK, it would it comes to a total of six hundred billion their earnings. Six hundred billion. If you were to tax one percent of that, it could fucking solve most of the problems in this country. Aye, well, I would. I'm up for that. Mm. Um, anyway. We've been going for about four minutes now, so I'm <laughs> conscious of time, Robert. Sorry. I mean, you've got somewhere to go, big That's man. Fine, so, um, what I would like to talk to you about is comedy. Um, like, so, how do you get started in comedy, basically? And you give us the background to that. What kind of trigger decision to go? Because for my, my books, you're one of the funniest people in Scotland. Definitely one of the Thank best MP, um, MCs in Scotland. We've obviously got Paul Smith, sort of doing the rounds on social media, doing great things with gigs. And I think you're at that level. If you start putting out the kind of content that he has, you know, with the filming, then you could go, go to the sky, I think, mate. I really appreciate that, that mate. That's a really nice comment for you to make. Um, it kind of goes back to my wee granny, but it? it's that wee voice in my head, my wee granny saying, fucking remember your station. And I think that's kind of why I never put out a lot of my kind of social uh, stuff on social the social media, I guess it's that kind of is that trauma thing where it's a kind of fear of fear of failure. I guess where people are going to criticise you, and really you shouldn't care. If, if you look at Paul Smith stuff, for every for every hundred likes or every hundred positive comments he gets, maybe he gets five negative ones, and that's what I would focus on. Personally I, speaking, see, I've seen this as well with like Mark Nelson stuff, which has went viral a couple of times, and then somebody posts like a negative comment. And then I've seen him like kind of replying to it, and I'm thinking he's fucking one of the best comics in the country. And I know maybe it's not my place to talk, but I wish he'd be just fucking ignore the cunts. You know what exactly. I mean? Like there's always going to be. Fortunately, you don't know what their trauma is, what yeah. the kind of day they're having. You know what I mean? So exactly. just leave that and focus on all the sort of positive stuff. But that's Good a working point. class thing, you know. I think where, um, like you, that you're saying you don't want to get ideas above your station, but I think the working class need to be. We need nothing's too good for the working class. Mm-hmm. So I think our community needs to start seeing but my mate's a comedian, I'm gonna fucking book tickets, I'm yeah. gonna go and see him, I'm gonna support him, share his stuff, all that type of stuff. Yeah. I think we need to start supporting each other. Whatever it is, if somebody's got a fucking cake business, go and buy fucking cakes for your pal, all mm-hmm. that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. No, I agree, mate, I agree. Um I guess I've always kinda had humour in my life and it's been a coping mechanism. Um even my wee granny. My wee granny was one of the most cutting, sharpest, acerbic people you ever meet in your life. And I think that's how, how she dealt with a lot of her trauma. Because, I mean, these people who brought us, us up, you can't fucking even begin to imagine the trauma that they had in their lives, especially my wee granny. She had a fucking tough, tough life. And um, she used humour. And it was actually, I remember, I remember her sitting, she was having a couple of sherries with a couple of her pals. I remember hearing them all pitching herself laughing when I was wee. <laughs> and I went in, and they were listening to Hector Nickel. Remember Hector, you heard them? Hector Nickel. I'm a good bit younger than you, mate. I can't even fucking idea. No, no, but Hector Nickel was like this kind of old Scottish comedian, but I think he was the first one to kind of go blue and all that, right? And I remember them all cackling. And then I remember kind of, um, she had Crucifixion as well. Um, Billy Conley, Crucifixion on, on oh, vinyl. The best. And I remember hearing that. I remember hearing the songs and hearing the laughter for the crowd and all that and thinking, wow. So I always had an ear. Um, for comedy, I loved like gro- growing up. Obviously, Billy Conley. I, I, I know Billy Conley inside out. Um, then kind of um, getting into guys like American comedians, like or Irish, like Dave Allen. The guys like that, right? Dave Allen. Uh, brilliant joke teller, great timing. Amazing mate, just a storyteller, a unreal mate. Joke teller, storyteller, unreal. And then um, my uncle was into guys like uh, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy Raw, Delirium, all that. Um, I remember watching that and thinking, wow, I'd love to be able to get that reaction for the crowd that, that these guys get. Um, so, obviously, I had a background in acting. I used to do a bit of acting and stuff. Um, I was working my theatre company. I met a good friend, you know her as well, Viv, Viv G. I don't know her as well as you, I but we're aware of her, I. So, I met Viv when I was like 20, 21, so that's about 25 years ago. And um, and she was like, um, you should really do comedy. She's like, because all the plays we were doing together, I was... I've, she was like, you've got brilliant comedy timing, not that. So she used to run a course in Strathclyde Uni, 10-week course, 
And I went and done it. And guys like Billy Cutwood, Des Clark, Des McLean, Jojo Sirland, Raymond Merns, all these kind of guys have done that course, you know what I mean? So I knew of them, but I didn't know them. So Viv used to run a wee kind of club. She used to go to quite a lot in Blackfriars downstairs. And, I, and there I'd seen like uh, um, uh, Frankie Boyle when he was just starting out and Ross Noble, uh, Jim Jeffries, all these kind of guys down there. So I, was names, like, aye. Aye, so I was like, wow. So I did Viv's course. And then on the back of it, I'd done a five-minute slot. And then, aye, the rest, as they say, is history, mate. So when was that? What year was that? About 2006. 2006. 18-year, mate. Aye. Nearly my 20-year anniversary. Pl- plenty of skin in the game, mate. Uh, but you know what? I've changed that many times as a comedian, I think. It's, it took me a long, long time to find my voice in comedy. And as I said, I think at the start, a lot of that kind of aggression that I had at the start did, did set me back a wee bit. And it takes you a while because then you get a rep on the circuit of being this aggressive guy and all that. And you know what, you're, know what it's like when you get a rep, it's hard to get rid of one. And then people would talk about you in green rooms and Rob Gaines, this, he's, uh, he's aggressive, blah, blah, blah. And he tries to fight with the punters and all that. <laughs> and then obviously... Um, and then obviously I've I've kind of changed. That them. was only when they were only buying your baguettes. You had a, a wee side business mate, going there. I think. tell you, mate, that's been that's the only when they did. They asked me to pack toys and bags. That's what it was. But then it's like, um, aye, I'd say the past six seven years I've kind of changed my style, my writing style, and my my interaction, my interactive styles all changed. Aye, it's interesting you mention that because I'll I'll give you an example. I mean, I done a gig in Sulkets one night, and you came down. And one of my cousins was there, and he's a big guy, dangerous man, and all like yourself. And you kind of had like a wee set too with him, and it was like it was kind of it was kind of yes, but obviously I didn't know a lot about trauma and all that at the time. And I was thinking, if I was going on here, this is no like Rob. And mm. my cousins came up to me, who's this pick man? And you're saying, who's that one? Kelly's fucking. And I'm going, listen, you two would actually go on brilliant together. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so it was it was weird for me to sort of see that mm. and be sort of stuck in the middle almost. Mm. But I'm glad that you've opened up about it and you're you're talking about it, mate. I mate, I think I think I wasted a long time in comedy by by trying to be the big man. And try to, I guess, they say that who you are on stage is like an extension of your personality. But that's that's what they say. So I think that was an extension of me trying to deal with something that was going on in, in my life at that time. And as I say, it's only been in the past six, seven years where I've kind of, I've really kind of changed my focus and my 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 tactics, if you like, when it comes to comedy. And um, I realise that I realise that your, your job is to make people laugh. You know what I mean? And sometimes. I do kind of find myself reverting back to that style, but then I just kind of pull the reins back. And it's good to know, because nobody's perfect, you know what I mean? So it's good to know that that I can now kind of say to myself, nah, just pull it back a wee bit. And see, when you were talking earlier about the situation, you told me, I don't know if it was in the motor here, I was here actually, when you were saying about um, looking under the bridge mm-hmm. and then sort of seeing the debris coming and, mm-hmm. and getting past you. Has that helped with that then, presumably? Massive, mate. Massive. I say, I went through a lot of kind of... Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, self-reflection, I guess. And you mentioned PTSD. Um, I've been diagnosed with, with, with complex PTSD, and that's something which has helped me a lot. Is to, I'll still have bad days. I'm not gonna lie. With my mental health, I'll still have really bad days. Um, but I find all the comedies and escapism as well. And as you said, it's about recognizing the good times and bad times will happen, but it's temporary. Aye, that's too your pass. Hundred <laughs> percent. Cool. Um, what about so? Have you then? Like, what was your best kind of memories of comedy? Then, like, have you had? Because you'd obviously a lot after dinner stuff and your big love of fitness. Have you had any kind of serial moments where you've really roofed a fucking gig or somebody's been there or anything like that? Or any of your, any of your heroes? You can sort of talk to us about stuff like that. You know what? I actually became quite close to Andy Gorham just before he died. I used to do a lot of a lot of kind of comedy uh, after after dinner stuff with, with Andy, and uh, we'd spend a lot of car journeys together. And he'd tell me a lot of stories about Rangers because that was that was I used to go and watch Rangers everywhere during that period when Andy was in goals from like four in a row or away up to when Rangers won nine in a row that that five year period I went everywhere home and away so he kind of be in the stands and seeing this guy who I idolised to then have shared car journeys and work with it was like surreal you know what I mean um, that guy broke my heart and never seen like fans heart fucking a million times but what a great goalie mm-hmm. has to be said obviously that's what Tommy Burns says about him didn't he he says on my gravestone it'll say Andy Gorham broke my heart well he, I think he stopped he basically, he basically won Rangers in the ninth title I think that season massive, didn't he massive mate oh. one of the best I've seen ever ever I mean I've seen like Buffon for Parma Ibrox that was probably one of the best goalkeeping performances I've seen as well and Rangers won what 1-0 or something 1-0 2-0 but that guy saved Parma that night, you know what I mean, Buffon. Um, 
Aye, but Gorham was just consistent. You know what I mean? That's the thing about Andy Gorham. Very, very rarely made mistakes. And you see Andy talk, I used to talk in the motor about Andy, and he'd say, yeah, when I first went to Rangers, um, he goes, I remember sitting in the changing room, and he goes, first week, he goes, we get pumped off of Falkirk, we get pumped off of AK Athens. <laughs> Remember? Ah, fuck, it was me. I'm a Celtic man, I don't know Rangers scores. And McCoyce was like that. He says, McCoyce looked at me and was like to the boys, he's like, we paid a fucking million for this kid. <laughs> he says, and Gorham was like, you fucking talk to, he stood up. And he said, and after that, he says, me and, me and Ali had became best of pals. Um, but Gorham used to tell lots of good stories, man, about and, uh, Rangers. Any ones you can share with us, or are you keeping them for the circuit or whatever? No, no, not at all. I tell this story Andy used to tell. It was about Paul Gascoigne, right, with Gaza. Um, one of the greatest characters ever. I think you agree, right, regardless of what your football agencies are. But um, he went down to South Shields, him and Gaza became pals, down to South Shields with Gaza, and um, he could see all these people. Obviously, he's a, he's a national hero. So all these people come up to him shaking hands, and he's like, give, give Gaza his due. He's like, he knew Maester, he knew their backstory, he knew who they were, right? And people were like, all right, Gaza, he's like, Gaza, blah, blah. Who's the family? And like, blah, blah. You could tell he meant it, he knew who they were. He said, but this one guy came up, you could tell Gaza didn't have a fucking clue who he was. And the guy's like, all right, Gaza. He's like, how, how are you doing that? And Gaza's like, I'm not going to do the accent, <laughs> right? <laughs> but Gaza's like, hey, good, good, good. And he's like, hey. and Gaza said to the guy, how are you? How's your, how's your dad? And the guy went, oh, me, me dad died, Gaza. And Gaza's like, oh, sorry, sorry to hear that. Hey, what happened to him? And the guy went, what a big sea. And Gaza went, he drowned. For fuck's sake. <laughs> oh Jesus! Aye, and that was that was. I mean, I don't know what actually happened, but he told that story. Aye, it sounds like that. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not sure. I know, I know, but that's what that's what Andy. Honestly, a lot of people towards the end of his life, Andy Gorham, I, I seen things on social media. People saying, so I, I booked Andy for a few gigs in the good year actually, and um, with Sam Marlon Ruff, we did for charity, and I had to force money in Andy's hand. Right to to do these gigs, I had to force money in his hand, and see as soon as I gave him money, he'd be fucking buying everybody drink and everything. Right, and he got by a rep towards the end. I been, um, what's the word I want to use? A bit of pawns, I guess he got he, he got a bit of rep saying that where he's he's ripping people off and he's asking people for money. Blah 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 blah. Andy Gorham, you want to talk about trauma? That guy had all sorts of fucking trauma growing his life, and I seen it talking to him on a one to one personal basis. Right, and. I, I know what it comes for, but I don't want to say, right? Cause of course, it, we should keep things like that private. And I will say, mm-hmm. Andy Gorham, he used to get with a, a woman who, who runs a bar in Solcoat. She pays Solcoat's and her daughter's at school, me. So I don't want to mm-hmm. obviously say anything that would be disrespectful mm-hmm. and stuff like that, you know? Aye. No, listen, see, so, see as soon as Andy Gorham get money in his hand, he couldn't keep it because he'd be what he spent when everybody ran about him. And that's the kind of person he was, you know what I mean? Um, and I'd seen him, but like we, I went to go and meet him for a drink with me, Andy Gorham, my mate. And Arthur Newman, uh, used to play for Rangers, a Dutch guy. Uh, okay, no. So we're in a wee pub called the Steps Bar in Glasgow, just run uh, on Glasgow Street. So we kind of you, you walk past it, but talk about bookies, right? Every sip he's paid, and they book the door. There were bookies next to it. After every sip, he'd be away putting on a horse. I'm talking about every drink of a pint. It'd take him about two hours to drink a pint because he'd be away putting a line on in between every sip. Uh, that's what I used to be like. I know mm-hmm. it's the same. And I, like you're saying, it comes to trauma because you're, you're wanting folk to have a good time. Mm-hmm. So I think because you internally are, are dealing with something or fighting something, mm-hmm. you're sort of like, oh, if I win money here, I can buy every cunt fucking make round. Make everybody else happy for the myself. day. Do you know what I mean? And then they're going, oh, fucking brilliant, you know, all the rest of it. Um, but it's, 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 it's a strong one again, as you say. Definitely, mate. And I. I'll defend Andy Gorham whenever I hear people kind of bad mouth from him. Um, I'll defend him because I know I did kind of have some sort of friendship, relationship, whatever you want to call He did used to phone me at times, like middle of the night, you know what I mean? Aye. And I always tried my hardest to be there for him cause I, because of what he'd done for my club. And then because they can, we kind of build up his friendship, you know what I mean? Well, we talked earlier about positive role models and heroes. He was obviously, you'd maybe know, um, he was one of your heroes, basically, so, and you became pals with him, so of course you would do that. Exactly. Well, Brian Loudrup was my biggest hero. He was my idol in terms of growing up. Um, in terms of Rangers players, he was the one. Uh, he came about five, six in a row, and then he basically carried that Rangers team all that time. Unreal. Probably the best player I've seen in the flesh of the Rangers jersey. Uh, he's the one player I think that Celtic fans would go if you could sign a Rangers player. <laughs> he's the quintessential player that everybody would go for. Brilliant, mate. What about, because um, I know we've not got long here, so um, what about Andy Murray, mate? I know you're, uh, you, you see me at any of your gigs? 
I love Andy Murray, mate. I, I guess. We're getting an impression, are we? Is that you keep that? <laughs> it's great. It's great being here doing your podcast, Paul. I'm so excited. <laughs> I, I swear. It's great because I hardly win tennis matches anymore. So to be here, maybe um, I could win something off you. <laughs> <laughs> Second of bells then, Andy Murray. Uh, no, it'll be better the show. Once you go in your masses, it'll be, it'll be better. Be better I think. Uh, who knows? Um, so what about, we talked about heckles earlier. Mm-hmm. Any good heckle stories? Like people are always interested. I've seen a good one with um, Ray Badger. I was actually mm-hmm. watching TikTok and somebody gave a good heckle. So just wondering if you get any examples of that. Good heckles. Wow. Um, Either for you personally or maybe even an act you've seen well, situation. Actually, I do a bit of refereeing as well. Do you know that? I, I do a bit of refereeing. Eh? I get refereed by Lips Heckling. Uh, no, I get heckled while I was refereeing. I got a wrong way around. I get refereed while I was heckling a schools match one time. Right? I was refereeing this game, and this woman was like to you, uh, this woman, we woman shouted, <laughs> Yeah, Kane, you should gear up the co- you should gear up the referee and just keep doing the comedy. <laughs> I was like, that's really nice. <laughs> it's probably the nicest, most kind of surreal heckle I've ever had in my life. <laughs> I don't know if that counts as a heckle, it's just a positive sort of message, mate. No, but she was trying, she was almost kind of passive-aggressive. She was kind of telling me to... Oh, because you were a shite rest, yeah, basically. basically. she's like, right. you should get up in there for the stick to the comedy. I was like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and what about, what is the ambition for comedy? Can we talk about, about that? Like, where, do, where would you like to go to? Like, would you like that to be the full-time gig or obviously, like, same as me, Fitbit is your first lover, I think that's how we're kind of barely. Mm-hmm. So, it, would, if you could choose one, like, and money wasn't an object, and you could do one, what would you do? Are you, you, maybe you could do both, up to you, it's mm-hmm. your choice mate. Well, my playing days are over, obviously, so in terms of the comedy, yeah. You've still got a game for Falkirk, I think. Well yeah, tell me about <laughs> it mate, uh, we got a management job in Falkirk now. No, Falkirk doing well just now actually, but um, aye, I think I think I want to be um, at a level where I'm kind of selling out decent venues, good sized venues, maybe theatres and all that kind of thing going forward. Talking about Paul Smith, I'd like to be doing a lot more gigs down south and all that, and maybe even maybe even abroad. I think that's the thing. Um, Janie Godley actually said to me when I first started, um, Janie said to me, don't aim to be a good Scottish comedian, aim to be a good comedian. And that's something I'd like to do, is kind of expand and do more gigs, bigger gigs up in Scotland, and then more gigs further afield. You've been in favour, obviously, recently for a wee story, doing a bit of barbering for some of the refugees, I think, that were coming over and based mm-hmm. up at Erskine there. You talked to me a wee bit about that, because I was amazingly impressed with that, really proud of you when I seen that, mate. Again, mate, I, I'd, I'd been... I was over... It, it was amazing, because it was a kind of fake coincidence kind of thing. I was driving over to Erskine, my, my Claybank, I take Claybank women, and we had a game over on Erskine High. So I passed by um, the big Erskine, used to be called the Erskine Hotel there, at the time, it's on the roundabout. I seen all these protesters and all that, so I kind of slowed down. There was all these people saying, refugees go home, blah, 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 blah. But then I also seen on the other side was guys like putting on meals and coffees and all that. So, and I seen a couple of placards. Um, so on the way back, I decided to kind of drive in and see what was going on. And I knew a couple of the guys who were on the, on the, on the supportive side of the protest. Uh, a couple of guys who were involved with the, the, the Unite Union, those kind of guys, mm-hmm. the guy Jim Lister who does amazing work, I've done work with Jim in the past. Um, so I stopped, I, I was chatting to Jim, I was like, what's going on here? He's like, oh, these people are not too happy that there's uh, refugees and asylum seekers housed up in Erskine. And some of the guys, the protesters, had actually travelled from like Saskai and Newcastle and all that to come and protest with people living in Erskine. You know what I mean? So I found that a bit strange. So I was like to Jim, I was like, well, obviously these people need all the help they can get. I went, they're not here without a choice. You know what I mean? There's people from all over the world, there's people from... Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, uh, Iraq, Iran. So um, so I got chatting to Jim, I was like, is there anything I could do? He's like, let me think about it. So Jim got in touch with us, he was like, are you still doing barber, Rob? I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, he's like, a lot of the guys are coming forward, we asked them what they want, a lot of them are saying haircuts. He's like, but obviously, so the plan originally was me to go and do haircuts on the, on the lawn at a hotel, but then one of the protesters found that out and says that they didn't want it was illegal for somebody to have a sharp object oh, in public. For fuck's sake. So what they did was they then managed to get a local community centre, and it was a kind of group that meets. It's an English. They help the, the guys kind of learn basic English, so they can go for jobs, interviews, or that kind of thing. Because when these guys come here, they want to get work. They want their dignity and self respect, right? And they're on handouts of something like fucking four pound a week, right? They're getting nothing. They're having to get fucking food bags, donations, everything to 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 have a wee bit of a dignity in their life. 
So a lot of them want to work, and the only way they can work is by speaking the language, right? So it's a wee kind of English language course. So I set up a chair at the back of this group, and basically I'm doing haircuts, and I'm, I'm kind of, especially if the guys have got like an interview or for college or anything like that, and then these are the ones I'm, prior, I'm prioritising and giving them haircuts. But I'm, I've actually cut, there's a, there's a lovely wee Ukrainian uh, older couple, a wee male and female, wee man and woman, Bogdan and Elena, their names are, and very, very broken English, but I was kind of using Google Translate to talk to them on my phone, Nora. And it turned out she had short hair and she wanted a wee haircut as well. So cut the wee woman's hair and all that. And, and, and then they share food, they share stories and pictures. And wow, mate, brilliant experience. I loved it. I think that talks a lot to the kind of character you are. And yeah. that's the guy I've met like, through my life. So um, so just brilliant, mate. Absolutely fair play to you for doing that, buddy. Um, so you've got your show obviously coming up. You want to tell us when the show is, whereabouts it is, how you get tickets, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we plug, mate. So my show is on the 16th of March, and it's at 6 o'clock, and it's in Tenant's Basement Bar, and it's uh, Rob Kane near Missy's, and there's tickets on C Tickets. Tickets have started selling, there's only 50. Um, it was a kind of last minute thing, I'm not going to lie, to put the show on, so I've just got a small venue, but I'd love to see it busy. Um, so, yeah. You'll sell that out, mate, I'm confident of that, definitely. I hope so. Um, <laughs> and what I would say as well is, obviously, this is the first podcast, maybe a few TV issues, we audio, the video, and all the rest of it, but Cali Corner, this is kind of going to be the style... You can follow um, on social media and it'll be going out on all platforms. You can get your podcasts. If you want the video and audio, it'll be YouTube or Spotify or Apple or whatever. Um, there was other things I wanted to talk to you about, honestly, Rob. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I know you're a manager on the rest of it, but we need to go. So That's maybe fine. we'll just call it there and then maybe get you back on at some point, big man. And Anytime. thanks so much for doing this, buddy. My pleasure, mate. Good luck with the venture. Good man. Thank you. Cheers.